You're listening to The Remix Baby, a podcast about fertility, family, and genetics. I'm Jana Rupnow, a fertility counselor and author of Three Makes Baby. Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Today I'm here with Ryan. Ryan reached out to me several months ago wanting to share her story um, from a different perspective than we have heard on the podcast so far because Ryan is an egg donor. So thanks for being on the show today, Ryan. Thank you so much. Um, I'm really excited to be here. I am 27 years old. Um, I currently live in the South. Um, and so I actually came to egg donation through talking to one of my friends. She had been considering it. And so she asked me to consider it as well, just so she could have somebody kind of doing it with her. She had applied, um, but for medical reasons, she ended up not being accepted. Um, and so I had been accepted initially to a couple of places. And once that happened, I started to join some forums and start doing a little bit more research about the process, because I think after I got accepted, it got a little bit more real to me. Yeah. Um, and so through that process, I, um, so I'm a part of this Facebook group that has a diversity of perspective as it relates to pe how people interact with this process. So there are people who are recipient parents, there are people who are siblings, there are people who are donor conceived, there are people who are mm -hmm. egg donors and sperm donors and embryo donors. Um, and so we all get to kind of talk together and share different perspectives. And what I learned from the donor conceived community um, was that a lot, a lot of people preferred people to be in non-anonymous situations. So in, from their perspectives, at least, um, less ideal if it's ID open at 18, but the most ideal scenario would be one that's not anonymous at all. And you all have exchanged, uh, identifying information from day one. Yeah. And so even though I kind of started out thinking that I wanted to be anonymous, um, I kind of moved into being like, to having the perspective of I would only be willing to donate if it was a non-anonymous situation. And so I'd get to, to interact with that family um, to some extent from day one. And so that really changed my relationship with a lot of the clinics and the organizations that I worked with because it just isn't that common, I found, um, right. to have organizations that, that offer that option. Um, and mm -hmm. so I started sort of refocusing and looking at different um, different clinics and different agencies. And I ultimately found one um, that really works for me. So what arrangement we have is that I'm going to go through an egg retrieval process and 50% of the eggs will be frozen for my future use um, to preserve my fertility in case I have any issues down the line. Um, mm -hmm. And just in my mind, I kind of view it as a taking an insurance policy out on myself. And then mm -hmm. um, the other half is going to go to a couple that I matched with. And so they got to see my profile and they chose me. And then um, I actually got to choose them as well and make sure that, you know, from a personality's perspective and a values perspective, that we were a really good match. Um, and so I've matched with them. And so we will do my egg retrieval later this year. Wow. That's great. Well, I'm going to back up for a minute and ask you about the Facebook group. Is this a group that you are able to share with listeners? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it is called something like donor conceived parents, comma, siblings, comma, um, you know, people. And I think it, it's got, um, it's honestly one of the biggest ones on Facebook. If you okay. search um, for a group that is for donor conceived people and also parents and also okay. siblings and also donors. Gotcha. So you were really listening to the donor conceived perspective um, coming into this process as a donor, it sounds like. Yes. No, that heavily influenced my decision because I wanted to be able to put something kind of good into the world, having a really informed perspective. Mm -hmm. um, what it sounded like a lot of people who were in there who had donated maybe 20 years ago, what mm -hmm. their perspective was, I thought I, I was only thinking of the intended parents at the time. I was thinking these people want to have a child and I'm able to help them have a child. And that was kind of the only part of the equation they thought about. But what that group encouraged me to see was that the other part was the child that would be born from it right. who later becomes an adult. Um, and so Absolutely. kind of what their perspective is. And a lot of them had strong opinions um, and do. that they felt like in, in certain environments, their opinions were being minimized um, yeah. by people saying things like, aren't you just happy to be alive? And aren't you just grateful for them? And your parents so wanted you. Um, mm -hmm. but I think that their perspectives were really able to challenge me and say, Hey Ryan, what are your actual motivations? Why do you want to do this? And yeah. 
do you feel comfortable helping put a child in the world that has no idea who you are, who has no connection with you? And even if they were able to find me through consumer DNA testing, that doesn't feel like you want them or feel like you thought about them or care about them. And knowing that that's even a possibility, it totally changed changed my perspective in terms of mm-hmm. how I was willing to to be involved with this process. And so part of that to me looked like um, not accepting financial compensation. And then the other part was making sure that I had an open relationship. So you don't accept financial compensation? Yes. I mean, so obviously the compensation would be that they are, um, that part of the eggs are being retrieved from me and then stored for me for a certain period of time. I think it's five years um, for free, but I mean, in terms of having money, um, like come into my bank account or anything, no, there's, there's none of that. Oh, but you're getting the, you don't have to pay for the price yes. of the egg retrieval. Okay. That's nice. Yes. Yeah. So half the eggs um, will be frozen for me for free for five years. And then after that, I would pay for them. Um, but it's a, it's a more unusual situation in the U.S., at least from what I understand. It is. Yeah. And I'd love to dialogue about that a bit more. So my perspective is also I, I'm a child-focused therapist when it comes to working with adoption and donor conception. Oh, and yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're right that no one has thus far really been thinking about the child as much in the field of you know, you know, you're so focused on getting pregnant as a parent and then you know, doctors obviously want to get you pregnant. That's their job. And there's really not that service out there for parents after they have a baby that helps them, teaches them what to say and how to interact with their child about being donor conceived. The reason is it was kept secret for so long. So mm-hmm. under, you know, when it's secret, obviously there's nobody talking about it to even give yeah, out. Absolutely. So it's pretty new. Um, I tell you, it's, it's been so wonderful to see the changes happen because when I started this 10 years ago, it, I felt like, you know, people thought that I was, didn't know what I was talking about when I would start to teach parents and doctors about the child's perspective. Mm-hmm. It just really wasn't being heard. Um, obviously the parents that came in to see me, they were listening and changing, you know, their minds oftentimes. Um, but it was just, it was a difficult message to get across. So I definitely identify with donor conceived adults that are, that say that sometimes their view is minimized. And I know that this, because it happened within the adoption community to adopted, uh, adoptees Mm. and birth mothers as well. Um, so it's, uh, it's swung back now and now adoptive parents almost feel like their, their needs are, um, you know, the, the least important, but I think it's important mm. that we know that all of yeah. in the triad is important. You, the donor, the parents and the child, everyone Absolutely. has rights to be properly informed and to know what they're actually getting into long-term for the rest of their life. Really? Yeah, no, absolutely agree. Um, And I feel kind of ashamed to think about it now, but that was not at all the perspective that I, that I had when I started, I felt like I was, you know, some kind of good person and some kind of, you know, kind of intervening where this couple couldn't maybe do it on their own. And so I had definitely an arrogant perspective to start out. Um, Well, I have to stop you there because it's not your fault. I mean, it really is how it is marketed by yeah i mean i had no idea yeah by the donation agencies and even clinics that market that way like you're this angel and you know Mm -hmm. hey you are i'm not i'm i'm not going to take that away from you what you've done for couples or what you're doing for a couple is a miracle it's amazing um but when you aren't presented with all of the true you know reality of the the aspects of what life looks like then yeah, you go in uninformed thinking you're doing this great thing. And then maybe you find out later it wasn't as, you know, you're, you're, this child that's born is upset or having problems and things don't yeah. work out. And then you're like, wait a minute, I did this great thing and now it doesn't feel good anymore. Why, was yeah. I, why didn't I know what I was getting into? It's all about setting the right expectations, I think. Absolutely. And just being yeah. informed and making an informed choice. And so, I mean, I've noticed that in that group and having talked to other people who have gone through that process, because now I'm surprised by, um, because part of, 
you know, from my perspective, I'm like, I don't have any shame around it. I wouldn't want the child to have any shame around it. And so I've, I've told my parents, I tell my friends, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people about this. And through that, I've heard about other people's infertility stories. And I've heard about other people's, you know, egg donation or sperm donation stories um, who just are in my circle that I never knew. Um, and so it, I'm happy to see that perspectives are changing, definitely. But a lot of people, you know, looking back, they're like, I, I had no idea. I didn't know um, that trying to keep it secret was a bad thing. I didn't know that waiting till I felt like it was age appropriate or waiting mm -hmm. until they asked about it or something like that, you know, mm -hmm. which often happened as a teenager. They were like, I had no idea. So mm -hmm. um, I, I'm really happy to see that things seem to be changing. Yeah. How would you answer the question? Parents ask me this a lot. You know, should I do anonymous or known? You know, is there a certain one that I should do? And you know, as a therapist, when I'm consulting with them, it's my job to remain neutral um, as their therapist. That's just uh, yeah. my my role. And so, it's really important for me to be able to look at the complexity of that and mm -hmm. their individual situation. And it, there's so many different situations, and we're talking worldwide because some countries don't even allow known donors. Yeah. So it's usually I really have to look at each situation separately and then answer that in a certain mm -hmm. way. So I don't give a blanket statement on that, but I will say I do suggest and that people lean towards openness. And that's just the best way for me to say it uh, is to lean towards openness. And that means if you have chosen anonymous donation to try to find as much information as you can. Uh, right now for your child. So they can start yeah. having that information from their time they're little, not wait until they're 18, because by that time your identity is formed a lot. Um, so yeah. What would you say to a parent that said, should I choose anonymous or known? And it's not anonymous anymore. It's yeah. really unknown versus known. Yeah. I mean, my perspective, even though it probably sounds harsh, but it's very much towards the 100% known. Okay. I would say that if you are not comfortable doing known, that you should continue to kind of do some internal work and think about that. And, you know, maybe what about having an anonymous situation might make you feel more quote unquote legitimate as a parent or what, you know, what you are struggling with there. Because at least from the, from my perspective as a donor, I don't have any, you know, desire to take, you know, their child from them, or I don't have any desire to kind of step in as a, you know, parent who is raising them and who is going to tell them, you know, what they need to do or anything like that. And so mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that sort of perceived threat maybe is a concern, but mm -hmm. I just think it is the living without shame is so important. And while, you know, I, I can definitely understand that there are challenges to how, um, you know, to feeling that maybe you struggled with infertility and that there's kind of some internal stuff to work on. But I think that in this day and age, your child will find out. Um, and the best that you can do is kind of teach them to live without shame and live to be proud of who they are and know where they came from and have some kind of relationship with the donor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it's pictures exchanged or whether it's letters or it's a once a year meeting or something. But mm -hmm. I mean, a hundred percent known really seems to be the way to go from, I mean, day one, even if it's just that the parents know the donor and, you know, maybe you introduce their child later, but I liked, yeah. um, you know, what I've heard of you say in the past about early and often tell them in the womb, tell them yeah. their babies before they can even understand. I really, really like that philosophy yeah. that you just get used to telling their story. And I think that is the, um, I mean, there's risk with every decision and you're going to do something wrong as a parent, but I really think that you set yourself up to do the most good and the least harm by um, establishing a relationship with, with that donor and not making it an unknown situation. Yeah. Well, I will say from adoption research, and we've got decades of that research, we do know that um, what experts have found is that children do better if they ha know that the birth parent is, uh, that they're still connected to them in some way and that they know who they are. Mm. And they know that they at least care. So, yeah. And when I say birth parent, it is that's the word that's used because they did give birth and, and such. Um, and so we know that just child from child development and sort of identity development and adjustment in the adoption field. So, you know, I think you can start to apply that same research to donor conception. And I think mm -hmm. you can say, you know, this, the same philosophy applies here and there are some differences. There are very much important differences and distinctions between the two. Yeah. Um, but I think if we use that data, and start applying it, that that can be helpful. That's not to say that it can't 
you know, I think parents that have used anonymous donation, they come to me and they say, oh my gosh, have I messed up? What have I done? You know, um, is that, is, am I going to, is my child going to be upset with me? And so they get really, really worried. And that's where I want to reassure those parents as well, that, you know, that that's, that everyone is different. And I, you know, I was, I actually was born and in, in, in a closed adoption. So I didn't know mm-hmm. my birth family until I became older and found them and had access to my records at 18 to, yeah. and I'm, I'm fine. You know, like it would have been cool to know a little bit more about them earlier. Yeah. Just so I didn't have to wonder so much about things mm-hmm. and just have so many unanswered questions. I think that just would have helped me sort of come to maybe a place where I'm at a little sooner than I did in yeah. my life. And that's all that I would say to people is that some kids need that. And then there's other kids that maybe like, I have a friend who's adopted and, you know, he doesn't ever think about his birth parent or ask about it or never wanted to meet his birth parent. So, mm-hmm. you know, like everyone is so different and yeah. you need to be prepared for the person who wants, um, who, you know, then I have a cousin who was given up for adoption and she wanted to know her birth parents, my aunt and uncle. Um, when she was 11 years old, she was just mm-hmm. asking about them and asking about them. So they got to reconnect. And so they've been had a yeah. relationship ever since. So like I said, you know, I wasn't there at 11. I didn't necessarily ask for that. I was good, but everyone's different. And she was good too. I mean, she just, that's what she needed. And that's okay too. Like it's okay. Yeah. All of it's okay. Mm-hmm. Whether you Absolutely. need it or you don't, or you never care. So I, I, but I love that you are bringing this perspective as a donor, because that's, that's helpful for parents to hear that there are donors out there that are willing to be open and that they, they care about the, the child that's eventually born too. So I think there are more than they might think. Um, yeah. Cause I'm also a part of a group that is egg donors only. We are egg donors, um, is the group's name it's on Facebook. And then they also have a website. Um, mm-hmm. but you would be surprised at the number of people who are willing to have some kind of openness. Um, so at least what I envision for the child that is born from my eggs or the children that are born, um, is that, you know, I, I've been emailing with the intended parents, you know, maybe once a month and we kind of share what's going on in our lives. We follow each other on social media, but you know, we haven't, we haven't posted any pictures of each other or anything. Um, I don't know that I necessarily envision myself going to their, um, you know, birthday parties or anything like that, mm-hmm. but I really, I'd like their, uh, the parents who are raising them to be able to, to kind of guide that when they're really young and then maybe they guide it when they're older, but Um, I don't know. You could tell me if there is a concern generally from intended parents of people kind of encroaching on their parenthood. Um, Mm -hmm. But at least from my perspective, there are a lot of donors who want to be involved in some kind of way and want to know that the kid is okay and want to know that eventually the adult is okay, but don't want to step in in a raising role, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I'm not surprised um, that you said more donors are willing to be open because I, I actually interviewed donors for the, when I was first starting out. Um, so for about five or six years, I did a lot of donor interviews to see oh, if wow. they were, yeah, Very cool. if, if they were qualified to move forward, just psychologically, if they were ready, if it mm-hmm. was the right thing for them. And yeah. when I, I would ask them, because of course I had this perspective that, you know, of knowing this perspective about the child's perspective. So I'd ask them, are you willing to be open if you're and have you thought about that this child that's born might come and seek you out and they might want to know who you are. And many of them hadn't thought that far in advance. So they're just like, yeah, gosh, I never thought about that. But then they said, yeah, I would be. I only had a certain population that was not willing to be open, but in general, everybody was said, yes, I am open. And that was amazing to me. So I knew early on that these, that people, the donors were more open than people realized. And it's the yeah. clinics and it's the agencies that tell people that they're not open when really they could very well be open to contact and the agency keep people apart. They keep parents uh, apart from donors. Yeah, that has really been what I've found as well. So mm-hmm. I think I told you I originally had applied to several clinics and agencies before I had really done my research. And so those were local to the state that I live in, um, in the South here. Um, and so I went back to them after having started talking to uh donor conceived people. And I said, Hey, actually I had signed up saying I wanted to be anonymous, but now I'm unwilling to do that. Can I still work with you? And two of the three said, absolutely not. You can't work with us. And one said, I mean, we can put you on our list, but let me tell you, parents aren't interested in that. And so I started applying outside of my state and I found um, that different states had different cultures as it related to that in terms of openness, but it is 
it, it took me a while to get matched because I had those requirements. Um, it you know, took me a while to find the agencies that, that matched with my values ultimately. Yeah. Um, but I, I definitely agree with what you said, where initially the ones absolutely were like, we won't facilitate this there, you know, Mm-mm. maybe I'll pass a letter, but we will see the letter first. We will scrub all the details out yeah. of it. Um, They're controlling all that nice. kind of stuff. It's yeah. based, it's money-based. Yeah. Conceive abilities. Conceivabilities, yeah. I've yeah, conceivabilities and uh, aspire fertility were both like absolutely, absolutely not. not. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. I think that helps to people just to to be informed again on which agencies are not open to known and which agencies are. So, which clinic did you work with that was open to yeah. be known donation? So, I don't actually know what Dr. Amy's clinic is, but like what the name is, but, um, it's called her freeze and share program and it's Dr. Okay. Amy Avazade. Okay. And P- yeah. And so she allows you to freeze your eggs and then share them with an, a family who's in need. And then also be open from the start if you want to be. Yes, she That's does. Great. And she in fact encourages it just to, exactly Good. like you do oh, great. early and often is kind of her motto as well. And That's one great. thing that really yeah, attracted me to her is that unlike some of the other agencies. Um, she kind of told me this is the amount of eggs that I expect to retrieve. So there's no, um, kind of incentive from her part to hyperstimulate and, you know, Mm -hmm. retrieve as many as possible. She's just kind of set clear expectations with me and with them about Mm -hmm. timelines and, you know, Mm -hmm. the drugs that I'd be using and all that kind of stuff. So I feel very safe and cared for as a patient equivalently to, um, you know, the couple being a patient, whereas, you know, some of the other women that I've met through, we are egg donors do not feel that same way. Um, and felt a lot like a number, a lot like, they were intentionally overstimulated to get as many eggs as possible, um, had really tough recoveries. So yeah, tell me other ways that egg donors can be taken advantage of and mistreated and not properly informed. Yeah. So a lot of people have talked about um, how people would downplay symptoms um, or both going through the process and downplay, um, you know, potential issues that could happen in recovery. Um, people have okay. talked about downplaying impacts that it could have to your future fertility. I think the biggest thing that I found, so after I was in that group, we are egg donors, I started knowing the right questions to ask. And once I knew those questions, I knew what answers I was looking for. And so when I would ask people, um, what are the impacts to me or what are some potential issues that could happen medically? And they said, I don't think there are any, or you could get hyperstimulated, but that doesn't really happen that often. I ask you, you know, what percentage of people does that happen to? And it's all over the board. And I mean, I actually, I I did a lot of research in this process. And part of the work that I looked at was Dr. Diane Tober's. But ultimately, I was like, I know the right answer is there are no long term studies. That's the truth. And so there are people telling me, yeah, so I'm like, there are people telling me, oh, nothing's going to happen long term, or we don't think anything's going to happen long term. I'm like, you don't seem like you're advising me in a way that's in the best interest of my health. You sound Mm -hmm. like you're advising me in a way that's in the best interest of your clinic and your bottom line. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There are no long-term studies that have been done on future fertility or on, um, yeah, or on rates of, you know, things like diseases that might be developed. Um, I know that cancer, some egg donors have said that they believe they got cancer later in life and they think it might've been caused from the um, yeah. stimulation. There's no way for us to know this without some studies, um, but we do have to have somebody that's willing to front the money that's independent for those yeah. studies. And that's the hard part, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Mm-hmm. And there, there have also been some donors who had said that um, for those who are looking for financial compensation, that they have not been given agency in the process to determine what their own worth is financially and the worth of the risk is to them financially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so agencies have said things like, you know, oh, we'll pay you say $10,000 for your time if you're going to donate and then say the family only has $7,000. Are you willing to do it at that rate? Um, they really want a baby. You've already started. They've got their eyes set on you. They've chosen your profile. Please, please, please. And, you know, from the donor perspective, they're, they're looking back saying, well, if there's $3,000 less, why doesn't it come from your finder's fee? Or why doesn't mm-hmm. it come from somebody mm-hmm. else in the process? Why am I the only one expected to be flexible um, when there's financial constraint. And so, so they're basically changing the financial compensation in the last minute. Yeah. So the, and then they try to get you by your heartstrings. Um, so there have been several people who have said that in the Mm. group. And so 
people have said, oh, I feel really guilty backing out because I don't want to ruin this family's dream and ruin their chances mm -hmm. at fertility. Mm -hmm. When in reality, if there's a gap there, there are many parties who are involved that can fill that gap. It's not just the donors who can. No, gosh, um, no. The donors who are, have put themselves at such high yeah. risk and it should be the agencies that are facilitating that. Well, I'll tell you this, Absolutely. Ryan, when, when I would screen donors, I don't screen donors very much anymore, although I, I may start back up again. But when I screen donors, um, if I found one that had a psychological disorder that disqualified them for, um, from donating due to the mm -hmm. AS, um, according to the ASRM guidelines, um, when I found that, I would tell clinics, agencies about it. The egg donation agencies would not take the news well at all. Wow. It was shocking to me. Um, I, instead of getting the response, well, thank you so much. This is good to know. We'll move on. They would mm -hmm. usually call me up and furious that I wasn't passing their donor. Wow. Mm -hmm. And they That's would very then, unethical. <laughs> and then after I didn't, and then after I said, well, you know, they, they, they took an MMPI and they had, they show they have a bipolar disorder or have ten, you yeah. know, a possibility of a bipolar disorder. And I advised that the, you know, that the donor takes some time for counseling or, you know, that basically mm -hmm. advised the donor in those cases, they're not qualified. It didn't happen very often, but when it did, they were furious and they never used me again to wow. do that. Mm -hmm. That was common. Very common. Yeah. It was no, very hard I mean, to I... make a living doing this ethically mm -hmm. because, well, I put, I couldn't make a living on this, um, doing this ethically because people would stop sending business to me if wow. I, and so, and I didn't, I didn't, if I just stopped do doing it. Right. If I do my yeah. job right, they wouldn't send me business. So I just stopped doing wow. donor screenings altogether. So, That's, cause I had never heard it from that perspective. I had heard from mm -hmm. the perspective of egg donors. Um, yeah. And kind of the different treatments that they've gotten, but wow, I didn't know that. But now that you say that it makes exact sense, because I mean, if your bottom line is tied to how many donors you can kind of put in your system and how many you can match with families, yeah. then they had invested money in this donor already mm -hmm. by the time it, that this donor got to me. And I remember yeah. them telling me, I heard things like, you know, I'd get insulted for the, the type of test I used. I used the MMPI instead of the PAI. I got mm -hmm. insulted and they told me that I, um, I was told once that they, they didn't see anything wrong with this donor. They met with her several times and she seemed fine. They who have how many degrees they in this area? Yeah, I'm guessing zero. <laughs> zero, zero. Yeah. It was un, it's truly unbelievable my experience wow. with screening donors. And it, 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 I have not seen it so far. I haven't seen it change. Um, but like I said, I, I did stop screening donors and I don't know mm -hmm. if, if people are rubber stamping those now or what's going on. I don't know who's screening. Them, I but. certainly hope not, but I would not yeah. be surprised to see ethical issues there as well, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, just a lot of cutting corners and I don't know what the solution is. I think it's to, you know, get it out of the, I think, you know, not, people have suggested going to nonprofit organizations that, um, that basically take the lead in, this type of facilitation. Um, so, mm. you know, maybe that can help with the, the greed and the money influence that takes over. Yeah. I hadn't heard that as a, so, yeah, as a solution. I, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, this podcast will be upsetting for a lot of people just because we're kind of exposing a, the, the dark side a bit of, of the field. Not that people haven't heard this already. They just probably haven't heard this on <laughs> yet on this podcast that's part of what I view as my responsibility, um, kind of be, with the knowledge that I now have, I now try to talk to egg donors and say, Hey, you might've donated anonymously, but if at all you would consider being open, please register now, or, you know, try to use the information that I have to help people make better choices in the future. Um, yeah. you know, whether it's people who are considering donation or people who already have, um, and so I really like that you are, it sounds like you're trying to kind of coach your parents into more openness and mm -hmm. you're trying to kind mm -hmm. of identify unethical practices and talk about it and share things like this on your podcast, because really I think that's what it's going to take. And so yeah. I, now that I feel more informed, you know, it's like, I know better, so I do better. Right. And so yeah. hopefully, you know, you can help continue helping people know better so they can do better. Yeah. I did have someone reach out and tell me that I was, um, that I was not neutral enough and that I, this, my podcast and my, the content I put out swings more towards, um, you know, being open and telling your child the truth about donor conception. And she found that to be that I wasn't being neutral enough as a therapist and a therapist, I should be neutral. I do want to make this clear. 
whether or not to tell your child about donor conception is not me not being neutral. Um, that's recommended by most experts, including the ASRM, recommends that you tell your child about donor conception. That is not just my opinion. That is a that is a broadly accepted opinion. Yeah. So I, I want to be clear that I am not being um, attempting to not be neutral or biased. Uh, I'm just following recommendations there um, that are best practice for child development and for the family involved, for the long-term protection of the family. Secrets yeah. hurt families and betrayal hurts relationships. And, and there's ways that you can be open from the front. And way, yeah. and that's what my book's all about is helping people prepare to be open. So I had to start with that, you know, basic question of, are you going to be open? Are you going to tell your child? And many people come to me and honestly say, no, I don't want to. And then I have to be compassionate and say, tell me what's going on. Let's work, let's work through this. How can I help you? Yeah. You know, I don't, I'm not here to judge you if you're not ready, yeah. but let's talk through it. And let's see if I can help you get to a place where you're ready to talk about this. Cause it's, it's shameful for everyone. Secrets hurt everyone, including the person yeah. who's, you know, you as the parent mm -hmm. having to carry that secret for years. I mean, you hear the donor conceived people on my podcast to say their parents are visibly relieved many times after telling the, tr telling this truth, you know, yeah. like, oh, finally I was carrying this big burden oh. for years. So, yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that in, I know when you first reached out to me, you kind of have, you have some criteria of what you, I like, first of all, I love that. I love that as a donor, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're being an advocate for your own rights and for your own um, needs and that you have this criteria. And I think I would say that for most donors do the same and know what you want and need and advocate for that. And then find the place that will do that. Tell me about some of your criteria. Cause I know you had besides being open and being a known uh, donor, I know you had a few other things on the list. Yeah. So criteria for the kind of agency or clinic or criteria for the intended parent? For the intended parent. Yeah. Yeah. So um, while I don't, you know, want to at all kind of intervene on whatever their parenting style is, um, in terms of being, uh, being accepting. So like one question that I asked them, I said, what would you do if your child came out and they identified as LGBT? Um, you know, would that be an issue for you? And so that was something where if the intended parent said, yes, that would be an issue to me, then I would not have been willing to donate to them. That's just a hard line for me. Um, and tell me that again, which one is the hard line? Um, if they said I would not be accepting or I would be unhappy if my child came out. Oh, so if they, do they share that with you? Um, so I asked that. Yeah. Um, oh, so I asked them yeah. what their okay. perspective was on that. Um, okay. And so while, you know, I know that you can't ask about every single eventuality, um, that was something that was important to me that they, yeah. um, they made a child feel loved, uh, regardless of what their gender identity was or how, you know, who they decided to love. That was important to me. Yeah. Um, we kind of talked about the, the level of relationship they were looking for. Um, I know that some people who have worked with the clinic that I'm working with in the past have had a little bit more of a kitchen table style relationship where, um, you know, they, they wanted to be involved at, you know, maybe every step or a lot of steps where they'd take, um, yeah, you know, maybe trips together or that kind of stuff. And I said, it's not that I would be opposed to something like that, but it's not what I'm going in with that, you know, absolutely in mind. And so sure. mm -hmm. um, I'd like us to both be similar levels of open in terms of we'll feel it out. We'll see what this kind of, what makes the most sense for us. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, somebody who said, I'm absolutely closed off to letting you meet the child before age five, or mm -hmm. somebody who said, I want you to build in two years, you know, twice a year visits. Um, both of those were, uh, they they didn't provide enough flexibility and openness, I think, for sure. what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's important to realize that when you set out within an open relationship, in, in an adoption open relationship, that mm -hmm. you can set out to be open and have even have these, you know, we'd love to see each other once a year, things like that. And over the years, it may, it may work out, but it may change too. I mean, just change is inevitable. Relationships yeah. change. People become more close or less close depending on how things go. So that, I love that you said that flexibility. That's so key. And I yeah, say that, that my, flexibility my piece. All the time. Yeah. I say, if you're adaptable and you're flexible with this process, yeah. you're going to do mm -hmm. fine. And that's, yeah, that's really what I was looking for. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then for me as well, I'm black. Um, so I don't know if, <laughs> you know, the listeners can tell on the phone, but, um, so it was important to me that one or both of them also be African-American or black, mm-hmm. um, yeah. American, just from a cultural competency piece where mm-hmm. I certainly understand that, um, you know, people from a variety of different backgrounds can, you know, raise children of a variety of different backgrounds. And I think, I know that you yourself have a daughter who's a different racial background yeah, than I you do. are. Yeah, I do. Yeah. She's Chinese. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it, it comes with an extra set of challenges. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you have to be up for that. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I think that, uh, especially kind of the environment that we, grow, that we have in the U S it was important to me that they could help them explain, you know, different aspects of their race and their cultural heritage that would keep them safe and keep them informed, mm-hmm. sure. um, and help them be mm-hmm. successful. And so, Certainly. I mean, if it was a biracial couple, I was like, no problem. Yeah. Um, But my preference was for uh, at least one member of that, of the parents uh, to be black. But, you know, in terms of single versus, you know, couple, that didn't matter to me. Um, Sexual orientation didn't matter to me. Age didn't matter to me. Whether they had children or not before, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. their professions were didn't matter to me. The state they lived in. Yeah. Um, You know, all that I was kind of like, whatever, you know, works for you, works for me. But, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I wanted to feel really good about it, though. Feel like they were going to a safe home, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And that's important for the child to know, too, you know, that you cared. You know, I think um, I'm so glad that you're coming on to talk about it. I know I have, I see African-American clients. And um, first of all, it's hard for them to talk about it because, you know, I've gotten a lot of feedback just culturally, um, yeah. the, the challenges there. I'm going to have a guest on soon that is African-American, she's going to be speaking to those challenges. And I'm just mm. beyond excited because yeah. you know, I can't be, I'm glad. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. So, but also just from a donor's perspective, because a lot of times they are told and under the impression, and, and I can't, I can't fully answer this, although my, my instincts are, it's not entirely true, but they're under the impression that they're just, it's really, really difficult to find African-American donors, um, that they almost can't do it. And kind of my response is, well, you know, you can't, you can find donors, yeah. African American donor. It may be, you know, harder, but they are out there. So interesting. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. Um, so certainly I don't see a lot of black people in the forums and groups that I'm in, but when I have uh yeah, when I've when I've applied to some of the agencies though, I because I ask about things like what do you th- you know, given my preferences and that kind of stuff, how long do you think it'll take for me to be matched? And of course they can't give you a hard number, but they will say things like, we have other donors of your similar racial and ethnic background, your similar education level, that kind of stuff. And here's the kind of low end and high end of what we've seen recently. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I got the impression that there were other people in the pools, but it's interesting because I, as a donor had been told, there's not a lot of black couples or, um, you know, black females at least who are looking for eggs. because at least what I was told was because fertility in the black community is decently high. Um, and so there's just not that much demand. That's what I had been told. I don't, I don't know the truth of that, but. I can't speak to the numbers of their fertility being high. I haven't heard that. Um, and I certainly see clients and I think what I have heard uh, the, con- the comment, the most common thing I've heard from the African-American community is that uh they get pushed back about talking about fertility or seeking fertility treatments because of the, uh, the message they get from the church, um, mm. is what I'm hearing is that, um, and I, you know, I'm in the South too, and that the, you know, they hear a lot from family members and stuff that, uh, you know, that it, to it's interfering with God kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah. yeah so my, I grew up in the North, but I, I currently live in the South. Um, mm. it was interesting when I told my parents, I, so my dad is definitely more religious and my mom is less religious, but both of them are. Um, and I thought that my dad's perspective when I talked to him about it would be more in that vein that was sort of, because actually talking to the couple that I'm going to um, be providing eggs for, they told me a similar, a very similar experience to what you're describing, mm-hmm. where people have said things to them like, yeah. you know, oh, just, you know, get a bottle of wine, go away for the weekend. It'll happen. Don't worry about it. Stop stressing. Or people will say, you know, if it's meant to happen, it will, it will happen. And if God's not letting it happen, then, it, you know, then it's not supposed to be. If God, that's it. If God's not letting it happen, it's not supposed to be. Or even I've yeah. heard recently, my uh, client told me that uh, her sister told her, her younger sister told her to, to uh, pray more. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, they got, they got the same thing too. And so mm-hmm. we actually had a conversation with them about it where, you know, in my conversations with them to kind of test their openness and especially their desire to tell their own child about its conception or about his or her, or their conception story um, is because I kind of said, you know, how does that impact your willingness to share and, you know, desire to be open with them is that people seemed, you know, not open to you, uh, you know, getting donor eggs. Um, and so that, that came up there, but I, I thought, cause my dad was pretty religious that he would be anti it, but his perspective was very much, you know, I think that it's awesome that you're able to be a blessing to somebody else and we have this technology. And so you are, you know, God's able to use you in a way that will be a blessing to another family. So his Mm -hmm. take was definitely from the religious perspective, but different. Um, I'm personally not very religious, but I thought that was a different take than I thought. And I think my mom, um, she took a little bit to come around because I think she just didn't understand initially. Um, She definitely thought she thought it was more similar to if I had gotten pregnant as a teenager where she was thinking, oh my gosh, this is something that's unplanned. And then the baby's going to go into the system and a baby in the system will not be cared for, will be, you know, less safe and that kind of stuff. Whereas I was like, no, I have total agency in this process. Um, I feel very informed. These are kind of questions that I'm going to ask. And these are, you know, and it's a relationship. Nobody is going to kind of knock me out, drag me into a back alley and harvest my eggs. You know, I am like, I'm, I'm going to choose them and they will also choose me. And I will know the doses of drugs I will be going on. And I actually am required to have, you know, a companion come with me to the procedure. So, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, she, she got on board and we talked about it a lot. And now she's really excited and actually she's going to be coming out with me for the retrieval and she will be meeting the family as well. So, oh, wow. Good. Yeah. yeah. Full circle. Nice. Yeah, no. So I'm really excited by it, but mm-hmm. I have definitely heard of and seen in the black community, um, perspectives that are similar to what you described where, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it just, it, it seems not okay in a way that, you know, maybe it doesn't in communities of other races. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, a, it'll be good to get some more perspective on that and sort of start opening up that dialogue. Um, yeah. Are you, uh, are you active at all on social media or? I am. Yeah. Okay. So, cause I was thinking we could do a, some Insta lives if you are yeah. just, cause I know that a lot of my followers would want to ask you specific questions as a donor. They don't get the opportunity. Yeah, I would to be to happy donors. to. Okay, that would great. be awesome. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it then. Nice. Listeners can look forward to that then. And um, yeah, is there anything else you can think that you'd like to share before we wrap up? No, I mean, just as much as I can encourage families to kind of be open about this process that I, you know, open to different types of donors than you might have initially been thinking about, open to, you know, sharing with their children, their conception story, open to having some kind of relationship with um, whoever's providing them eggs or sperm or embryos, you know, as much as I can encourage that kind of flexibility and, and being open to the process, I think I would, but yeah, yeah, other than that, um, this has been really great. I've enjoyed talking to you and I'm really excited, um, by the work that you do and and bringing conversations that might not otherwise be heard. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. So several months have now gone by and Ryan, it's great to connect with you again. Um, so much has happened since we last spoke. So I really definitely wanted to catch up again, um, and talk to you to get an update on your experiences. So I'm just going to let you kind of tell the story. Okay. Um, So yes, this week um, I'm actually in California. So I've just started my cycle. Um, I have had three kind of evenings thus far of shots. Um, So my ovaries are starting to kind of uh, get stimulated. Um, Mm. So yeah, since we last talked, um, I mean, there's been a lot more action in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, Mm -hmm. There has been the coronavirus epidemic. And so kind of wondering whether or not my cycle is going to be pushed back later. Um, 
Yeah. And so kind of as it relates to egg donation, I think something that has become kind of more apparent to me, I know that we talked about last time, was that it was really important to me that I was only donating to couples where either one or both of the parents were Black. And I think that that's only become kind of more apparent now, especially given like the social environment, knowing that like whatever child they raise will be at least half Black, possibly Mm -hmm. 100% Black. And so coming from that kind of racial background and knowledge and being able to explain to you know their child like this is the way that you know you will be treated in life these are some strategies to kind of make sure that you stay safe this is what you know we are kind of working towards and fighting for I think was it was really important to me then and I think it's only become more apparent now Mm -hmm. and so that's something I've been really reflecting on um yeah, I had I makes a lot of sense. Actually, had a conversation with the intended parents about it just because um, they already have uh, the intended mother has a child from a previous marriage, um, and so we had just talked about it because her son had wanted to kind of go down and participate in some of the protests in their city, um, mm-hmm. and so yeah, I mean having that connection with them and being able to talk about current social events as they impact us specifically in our community, mm-hmm. I think it's been, I mean, it's only made us closer. Right. Um, I think amazing. I told you before, mm-hmm. yeah, this is a, a known donation. So um, yeah. I didn't know them beforehand, but you know, we've been in contact and, and that kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's great. I think that having at least one parent be able to identify with um, being black in, in this society is so important. It's fascinating because if you think about the child that will come to be, I mean, the story that this child will have that his parents, his or her parents and donor um, were able to share in this experience and then communicate about it and be part of this formation of change that's coming about for him, his or her sake. Yeah, no, I really hope so. Um, And we had been hoping to actually meet in person Um, now. So I actually, I live in Texas. And so as you know, we are opening up pretty significantly. Um, But, you know, coming to travel over here, it's very interesting seeing that the environment feels like it's at least, you know, a month ago, at least when I was in Houston. It it feels Mm -hmm. similar to four to six weeks ago in Houston where everybody's out wearing masks. People Mm -hmm. are not eating inside restaurants, not going inside bars. There are no Mm -hmm. gyms open, nothing like that here. And so we, um, I'm not sure if we will be meeting in person. We had hoped that initially, but sort of some, another thing that kind of changed since last you and I spoke was that I'm not sure whether or not we will actually meet in person while I'm here. Um, but Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hope that, you know, there's kind of a socially distanced appropriate way that we could, but I completely understand yeah. if, yeah, if that's something that, you know, they're not comfortable with. I think, yeah, just having been in Houston for the past couple of weeks, I think I've become more accustomed to the idea, though, mm-hmm. you know, admittedly, I'm not super comfortable with the extent to which I've seen things open up. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, just trying to be respectful of boundaries and that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, yeah it, it's something we, nobody expected. We did not foresee that would kind of you know, be a factor in the cycle. Right. Um, but wow. Have you met over FaceTime then? We have. Yes. Yeah. So I've seen them before. Um, so actually our first conversation, we started with the psychologist for probably the first 15 minutes. And then we talked for another two hours and 15 minutes just alone. Um, yeah, just kind of getting to know each other because we knew nothing about each other at that point, really, other than what was on paper. Um, but yeah, so I've seen them and that was a video call the entire time. So Cool. Did you find that there were, there was, I mean, this kind of seems like a, a, probably there's an obvious answer to this, but what was, <laughs> was surprising that, that you saw was much more than what you expected on paper? Like what would the experience of actually getting to talk for two hours and see them? Yeah. How did that fill out and round out the, the experience of knowing who they were on paper? I think it made everything seem just more human. And I mean, the only analogy I have is kind of like with online dating, where I think that, I don't know, a concern as an egg donor, especially one who wants to be known, is that they might be afraid that I'm trying to take their child or that I want some super involved parental role or something like that. And so I think that was a lot of what my concern was around is like, am I coming across as just this normal human person? That's like, Mm -hmm. I just don't want to feel like an egg factory. That's all. It's like, I'd like to just, you know, just know you a little bit. And I think, um, Mm -hmm. so that was kind of a concern is like, I wanted to kind of put that forth and not um, come across as some kind of 
scary boogie woman, I guess that, um, <laughs> so that, yeah, that there'd be kind of weirdness there. Um, and so I think that was one thing that was interesting, but just finding the odd ways that we were similar, like liking the same foods or like we're both into hiking or, you know, stuff that nobody thinks to put as the first headline on their profile. Right. But stuff mm-hmm. that is just, it's, it's very cool to have that in common. Um, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like little things, little things yes, that right? connect um, you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then I think kind of the last thing was that and this is all just kind of on gut feel, but like you read about people on paper, but I was really concerned that I want the child who comes from my donation to be raised in what feels like a healthy, safe home. Um, that was just a concern of mine. And so not being able to see or speak to the parents at all just didn't give me peace of mind. Now in a you know three hour conversation, can you really figure out what they're going to do in their toughest, darkest moments? Of course not. But like having that kind of gut reaction, I was like, oh, these are good people. Like I just Mm -hmm. left the conversation saying, these are good people. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It just made everything more real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Closes up the unknowns and and fills in those gaps. And I love how it's also, you you definitely sound like you had this amazing opportunity to really connect with each other. Yeah. Yeah. I really think we did. Um, And yeah, they, I mean, they had shared some kind of concerns with me that they had had. And yeah. So, I mean, And I think just kind of stepping a little bit into that vulnerability, like they shared their story of, you know, how far they'd come and experiences with miscarriage and failed cycles and, you know, things that they thought would work out that didn't. And I think that both of us kind of sharing those vulnerabilities just made us, you know, maybe not fast friends, but at least fast connected, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. In some kind of way. Yeah. You know, the more we introduce people to these give them these visuals like you're giving them of these conversations mm-hmm. and what you shared, you can start to make it feel like a more familiar s- uh, setting and feeling that th- th- it doesn't have to be so fearful that we don't have to yeah. be fearful around donors have, don't have to be afraid of intended parents, but most importantly, intended parents don't need to be afraid of their donor and afraid of yeah. having some kind of a connection um, mm-hmm. and getting to know them and, you know, if it's not a good fit, then you'll know. And then you can make that decision to say, you know, this probably isn't the best fit. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that because again, for the child's sake, because then again, it's not this mystery person that may or may not ever want to meet you if you're interested, you know, as a child, but it's Mm -hmm. someone that your parents connected with, engaged with, made a really conscious decision and uh, an informed decision. Yeah. I think that just, yeah, I, I hope that that is a model that be the future, more of the future. I hope so as well, is that at least that option is open. So if the child is curious that, you know, they have access to the person who helps, you know, give them half their genetics, right? That's right. Um, mm-hmm. It's a special so, person yeah. in their life, whether, you know, you're connected to those people, whether they become, you know, actually family-like roles mm-hmm. socially or not, you do yes. have connections with. Interesting. Well, this was great. I'm, I'm glad that, yeah. um, and glad we had a moment to talk about that. I'm glad you shared about, you know, what's happening with Black Lives Matter and how it's really um, validated your feelings about um, race and in the intended parents and being part yeah. of that uh, intention, I think is really, is really good. And, you know, there's nothing wrong like with a donor having intentions about what they feel is best. I think there's, I think there's a lot of room for that than mm-hmm. so much more room than what has been given um, yeah. through agencies and through, you know, organizations. I would agree as well. Yeah. I think there are a lot of situations that you are made to feel difficult or uncomfortable for having preferences, but I would mm-hmm. really hope that donors feel comfortable expressing that just as much as intended parents do. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, but I'm also happy we really got to connect. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Well, thanks for coming back on and updating us. Of course. Thanks for listening. If you would like to follow for more content, you can go to my Instagram and Facebook account at Jana Repnow LPC or follow Three Makes Baby on Instagram. You can get a copy of my book and the companion workbook to Three Makes Baby on Amazon. If you like this podcast, be sure to like and subscribe. Have a great day.